excited for our baptisms, which we'll introduce into in, a, in about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes. Um, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned, the kids will be coming back as those who are getting baptized are sharing their testimony. So parents, be ready to receive your child back in. They'll be uh, coming back to seats. We want the kids to see what's going on, you know what I mean? We want them to hear the testimonies. We want them to see baptisms take place. And we'll talk more about that as I get to the end of my, my message here. Uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome to all those who are visiting with us to support someone who's getting baptized. Uh, thank you for supporting them. I, I promise you that you being here today means a lot to them. It means a whole lot to them. So thank you for showing love in that way. Uh, if you're in the community and if you don't have a home church, uh, we mean this from the bottom of our heart. We'd love for you to make this your home. We'd love for you to be part of our family. If you can hand clap to that. Yeah, we'd love that. <clears throat> Our prayer is as you're here today, you would <clears throat> sense, first of all, God is here with us. Uh, I, I've already sensed his presence in a mighty way this morning, that you would know that God is at work in this church, um, and that you would know that there's a people who love, who love hard, imperfectly, imperfectly, right? We're imperfect people, but we do love, and we strive to walk with Jesus. And I hope you would see that as we grow together. Um, what we've been doing over the last four weeks or so, um, I've been teaching a series called 24-7. And in this series, what I wanted to do is lay out what a typical day or week looks like for someone who's trying to follow Jesus. Um, it's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus. It's another thing to live for him. And that distance between those two points make an eternities of difference. There are many people in our world who say they believe in Jesus in some form or another, but Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So let's say I know or believe in Jesus is one thing, but to really love him means to follow him, to obey his commands, to live our lives for him. And in this 24-7 series, I want to unpack for us what that looks like to say, I'm going to live for Jesus. We talked about how uh, it could be our aim to wake up first thing in the morning to spend time with Jesus. Because we know that what waits for us throughout the day is a whole lot of mess. Anybody there with me? Yes. And then we go to work. A lot of times we're running late. We get to work and all craziness is there in our jobs. Um, all kinds of challenges, temptations, dis discouragements, unmet expectations. How do we sustain our faith in that environment? We talked about that. We talked about how ultimately when we seek first God and his kingdom, everything else begins to take its right place in our lives. All right, we seek first his kingdom, not second, not third, not fourth, but put God first in our lives, and then work makes sense. A school makes sense. Being, a, being someone who's at home makes sense when we set Jesus out first. And then we talked about friendship and the necessity of friendship in our lives. We know it's a source of many of our hurts, but we need in our regular rhythms of our lives, men, you need brothers in your life, ladies, you need sisters in your life who are going to point you to Jesus and invigorate your faith. Today what I want to talk about is the importance of sharing our faith for those of us who are followers of Jesus today. Now, I know that may not be the case for everybody in this room. In fact, I expect that to not be the case. I know there's some here today who are here to support someone else. Maybe you yourself are exploring out the Christian faith. You're trying to figure out, make sense of whether or not you're ready to give your life to Jesus. What we're talking about today is indeed what that looks like and then what it looks like for someone who is following Jesus to share that faith with someone else. Jesus says, right before he ascends to heaven, after he raises from the dead, he tells his disciples, he says, go therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're about to do some baptizing. That's going to be exciting. What precedes baptism, though, is the making of a disciple, which means a disciple is a follower of Jesus. And what precedes making a disciple is telling someone about Jesus. Romans 10, it says this. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? If you're a child of God today, if you have devoted your life to Jesus, if you're committed to following him, you are called to be a preacher. You're called to be someone who takes the good news of Jesus and brings it to someone else. God wants to use you. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of he does want to use you. He wants to provide opportunities for you to tell people about the gospel. And the word gospel simply means good news, the good news of Jesus. So God provides gospel opportunities. And what do we call those, church family? Gospel-tunities, all right? And when gospel-tunities knock... God's like, hey, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? This past, uh, a few months ago, I saw a billboard for Uber. And then I saw a commercial. They had this huge campaign where they're trying to put out their product. And by the way, Uber serves some 15 million rides every day worldwide. That's crazy. 15 million. And in that commercial, their slogan was, opportunity is everywhere. Doors are always opening. You seen those billboards? Doors are always opening. The minute I saw that, I'm like, that's God. God provides opportunities for us everywhere, and he is always opening doors. He's always doing it. More than 15 million a day, family. But the question is, will you get in and ride with God? The question is, will you travel where he's taking you and where he wants you to go, or will you impose your own will and resist God's open doors? Doors are always opening. Opportunity is everywhere. What are you going to do? For many of us here today, today is an open door for you. You come here, and you're, just, you're not sure where you're at with Jesus. And God is so good. Because what he has done today, he has opened a door for you. And I'm not talking the door of 3105 North Oak Park Avenue. I'm talking about the door of the way to salvation. And today what I'm going to share with you, what you're going to see in the baptisms, is that God is a missionary God who left his throne to save broken people like me and like you. And today he's opened a door for you to hear this message. And my prayer is you get in with him. You ride with God he said, God, I believe in you. I have trust in Jesus for the salvation and forgiveness of my sins. And church family, for those who know the Lord here today, I want you to embrace this call. The opportunities are knocking, and that you would embrace that with courage, with boldness, unashamedly. God is doing a thing here. And in our 24-7 experience, he is constantly opening doors. And it's a matter of whether or not we see them, the opportunities, and whether or not we seize them. And that's what God has called us to do. Would you meet me in the book of Colossians in the Bible? It's in the New Testament of the Bible. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. There is a Bible in a chair in front of you. It's a blue Bible. When someone gets the page number for Colossians 4, can you shout that out so we can 
point uh, to our brothers and sisters who may not know where to find that in your Bible. There is also a table of contents in the front of your Bible. Colossians 4 is on what page? 985. Thank you. The Bible is divided up into two parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament. The word testament means covenant. God's made a promise in the old part of the Bible, and he's brought a new one in the new part through Jesus. And the New Testament is where we find the life of Jesus. The book of Colossians is in the New Testament, where we see about the implications of living a life for Jesus. Colossians chapter 4 is where you're going to find me. It was written by a man named Paul, who used to hate Jesus and then became a servant of Jesus who went from persecutor to preacher. He was one who, uh, who opposed God's will and then realized he was fighting against the wrong enemy and then surrendered his life to Jesus and devoted his life to telling people about Jesus like I'm doing with you today. And in that time of devotion, he goes to different cities. One of the cities is, in ancient Greece was called Colossae, and that's where the book of Colossians was written to the Christians who lived in Colossae. And in chapter 4, he's wrapping up his letter to the followers of Jesus to give them instructions for life. And he tells them this, and this is what I want to show to you, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. If you're able, would you please rise to your feet as I read God's word, if you're able to do that. Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. Can you say watchful? Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I'm going to read that one more time for us. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. I'm going to get directly to the point here. Paul starts out here saying, continue steadfastly in prayer. He's saying, be devoted in prayer. Have a proactive prayer life is what he's telling them. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to pray without ceasing. Prayer is a Christian's declaration of dependence. And prayerlessness is our declaration of independence. When we don't pray, we're saying, God, I want to live independent from you. But when we do pray, we're saying, God, I want to live dependent on you. So small wonder why God said, why Paul says, pray without ceasing, because every moment of our day, we are dependent on God. We need him every second. And Paul's like, stay steadfast in prayer and be watchful. Don't coast. Don't be passive. Be watchful in prayer. Be engaged. There's one person said, be sure to pray in your prayers. Don't just utter words, but to come to God and God, I need you here with this thing. So, so Paul tells them, this is what I want you to do. I want you guys to be those kind of people who are devoted to prayer. And I love what he says in verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. He's like, so by the way, when you're praying without ceasing, when you're devoted to prayer, can you remember me? Like Coco, right? He's like, remember me. Remember me as you pray. Think about me. At the same time, be, be, have, have me on your mind. What I love here is what Paul does. 
He's not too proud to ask for prayer, family. He's not too proud to say, hey, I need help here. Pray also for us. And I love the community aspect there. Pray for us. See, Paul writes this letter from prison. He was arrested for telling people about Jesus, thrown in prison, and he's waiting to be released. He doesn't know his fate. But he does know he's there with some friends of his who got locked up with him. And while they're in prison, he, t- he chooses to maximize his time by writing this letter. And then while in prison, he asks them to pray for him and for his companions. Pray for us. And you might expect them to pray, to say, pray for us that God will get us out of here. Pray for us that we will be exonerated quickly. Or pray for us to get us out of this pit so we can go about God's work. But he doesn't ask for any of that. He doesn't ask for a good health in prison. He doesn't ask for a good meal in prison. He doesn't ask for financial means when he gets out. Paul must have had a hundred prayer requests. But at the moment of writing this letter, there is one request that rises to the surface as a burden of his heart. He says, pray also for us for what? Look what he says in verse 3. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. He's like, I'm in prison. I got nowhere to go. Would you pray that while I'm here, God would give me an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus? Talk about maximizing your afflictions. Sometimes we think an open door means a life free of adversity, don't we? But that's not the way the Bible talks about an open door. Sometimes when we think of open door, we're looking for opportunities in life. Pray that God would open a door for a raise, open a door for a new job, open a door for a new house, open a door for all kinds of things, and those might be good requests. But it's interesting that the phrase praying for an open door or an open door shows up five times in the New Testament of the Bible. And every single one of those times, it's with reference to an open door to tell someone about Jesus. Paul says, or in, in the book of Acts chapter 14, Luke writes, When they arrived and gathered gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God opened a door for people who were non-Jewish to hear the good news of Jesus. But it's interesting, eight verses earlier, Paul and his missionary companions were stoned with bricks, rocks, trying to kill them. So isn't that interesting? God opened the door in the place where they were stoned. We think of open doors as pl- pl- the place of the least resistance. And Paul's like, no, God opened the door. Yeah, I got stoned while there. But some people heard about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, Paul says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says there's a wide door. There's some great opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Oh, and by the way, there are many adversaries while I'm doing it. The open door was coupled with adversity. See where I'm going here? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Paul has an open door, but even still, he's got a restless spirit in the midst of serving Jesus. See, the open door doesn't mean a path of least resistance. One more example, Revelations 3.8. 
Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And he goes on basically to tell them because people are trying to shut it. See, when God opens a door in the scriptures, it is meant as a door, as an opportunity to tell other people about Jesus. And when Paul is locked up in prison, he's saying, hey, you need to be devoted in prayer. And while you're praying, remember me and ask that God would create an open door for me to tell people about Jesus. This is his prayer. He's praying that opportunity would knock. He's praying that God would create a way for him to let other people know about Jesus. And pray, he says, to declare the mystery of Christ. And that mystery is none other than the fact that Jesus would die in order to cause us to be saved. That he would raise from the dead to conquer sin and death. Opportunities don't always come easily uh, with, with little resistance. They often come actually with lots of resistance. Uh, <clears throat> Pastor Jeremy was mentioning that in our church we have six real community gatherings, families that get together, uh, church family, and when I mean church family, I mean all who are part of the brook. We get together in six different homes throughout the week, and we also get together outside of there, but to live life uh, for Jesus. And we spur each other on. And when the springtime comes around, which it's coming, believe it or not, it is coming, I promise, we switch gears in our real communities. In the fall, we have a lot of time to devoted study of the Bible. And now we're starting to switch gears into the winter and spring to get what we've learned and go out into our communities to tell people about Jesus. We're praying that God would open doors. In the weeks ahead, in your real communities, your groups are going to be discussing what mission field in our neighborhood God might call you to serve in. And what we've seen over the last five years since the brook started, that God has faithfully opened doors when we've asked him to do it. It's not like God, we're like, God, would you open a door? God's like, nah, I don't want my good news to go reach those lost people. No, God is eager to open doors, and he's eager for us to see them and to seize the opportunities. And so this is what I love about the spring season at the brook. We start being very aggressive. We're supposed to be always on mission, but in the spring we are especially aggressive in trying to discern how we as a family in our real communities can engage our neighborhood. And over the years we've engaged Steinmetz High School, Locke Elementary School, Bell Park. We've engaged other aspects of our community, and we're praying that God would open new doors in addition to the ones he already has. And he would use us to do it. Yeah, you can clap to that. That's what we're asking God to do. We want to be like Paul saying, pray that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And then Paul gives a second request. Not only pray that God would open doors, but in verse 4, pray that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul's like, hey, I don't want to mince words here. I I don't want to jumble down the good news of Jesus. I don't want to complicate it. I don't want to oversimplify it. Someone once said that the Bible, that the the good news of Jesus, let me rephrase it, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is simple enough for a child to understand, but deep enough for the greatest scholar to wallow and wade in its waters without plumbing its depths. And, And that is true. What we find sometimes in our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and the beliefs of the Bible, God's stance on a variety of matters. And when we are faithful to God's word, we're going to receive opposition at different times. It will happen. It happened to every open door in the Bible. And why won't it happen to the open doors God does today? 
But one thing we've got to make sure, as Paul prays for here for clarity, is that we never water it down. Never water down the good news. Let me preach this to you guys here, because we need to know what this message is. The good news has to start with bad news. And the bad news is that apart from Jesus, we are sinful people. We've all messed up. And if you say you haven't, you are lying to yourself. All right? We've all failed God. We've rebelled against his commands. We've thought thoughts we shouldn't think. We've said words we shouldn't say. We've done things we shouldn't do. We've rebelled God, and and it's in our being. It's within us. And that's bad news because God is perfect, and we are not, and God is eternal in life and light, and we who are sinful then have the darkness of sin in our lives, and we can't be with God in heaven, which apart from God's intervention, this life ends with the worst still to come. Death, then, is the gateway into eternal suffering apart from God. That's bad news. And in our world, people don't want to hear the bad news. We want to hear that humanity is basically good. But last time I checked, no one teaches their two-year-old to slap their brother. Last time I checked, there are things you and I think and do and say that come from the pit of our wicked hearts. Now, that doesn't mean we are not capable of doing good things. I know many of you are very generous and kind people, but generous and kindness doesn't get us to heaven because it can't cover our sins. So family, that's bad news. And our world needs to hear that. But as I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, God is a missionary God who understands the bad news and decided to do something about it. He has divinely intervened into our world. And he had, in the Old Testament, sent his prophets saying, tell my people to return to me. Tell my people. And they would come one after the other. And the people of God would push God away until God says, all right, I'm going to come down myself now. I'm going to take flesh, skin, and bones. You will call me Jesus. I will walk this life. I will be perfect for the people who could not be perfect. I will live the life they could not live to die the death that they deserved. And what Jesus did, he went to a cross for us. And on that cross, he took your sin, your shame, all your failure, he put it on himself. And in exchange, he did the unthinkable. He took his perfection, his righteousness, and he declared it to you. So when you put your faith in Jesus on that cross, you can clap for God, family. You put your faith in Jesus, and God looks at you. He says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven when you turn away from your sins and you turn to God. You are clothed in his righteousness. And when the Father sees you, he doesn't see your mess, but the perfection of his Son. And that is the good news that's made available to everybody if you would put your faith in Jesus and then turn away from the old, your, the old you, your old life. That's called faith and repentance. It's one coin, two sides. You can't have one without the other. You can't just say, I believe without changing your life and letting God change you. You can't try to change your life without believing. You need to believe in Jesus and watch God change you. That's good news, family. That's good news. So God forbid we add anything to that good news. A well-seasoned and cooked steak does not need A1 sauce. 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Arroz con andules. Rice and beans doesn't need ketchup, y'all. If it's cooked right. All right? <laughs> but in all seriousness, the gospel doesn't need our cuteness. The good news of Jesus does not need our creativity. Yes, we're called to creatively proclaim it, but it doesn't need any new information. It needs messengers, family. It needs people who are going to step into God's car and say, God, drop me off where you want me to go. Take me where you want me to be. Opportunities knocking. God, let me see it and let me seize it. God's a God who's at work. And this good news of Jesus brings forgiveness to the most wicked of peoples. And you might feel like that's you today. And this is good news for you. The good news brings healing to the greatest of brokenness. It brings hope to the most of despairing. It brings freedom to the addict, cleanses the immoral, redeems the slave, and restores the battered. This is our God family. This is why Paul, while in his prison, says, hey, what's most important right now is not my release, but that these other inmates, that these prison jailers, they would hear about Jesus. That's more important than my comfort. So fam, I pray that we would be bold in declaring this good news. And I pray that there might be some today who are bold in responding to it. A couple weeks ago, our brother David Dudan in our real community group gave this amazing illustration. I told him I was going to steal it, so I'm stealing it. There's a community of people along the Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky, Virginia, and West Virginia who are coal miners. And as coal miners, they have a generational legacy of being those who get into the coal mines to work. It's part of their family thread. In fact, even I heard in their interview, some people said even the scent of the coal mines brings back purpose and meaning for them. But the one problem, though, is that in these coal mines there's coal dust. And these miners who for generations have mined the coal mines find themselves in, t- in the age of 40 and 50 having what's called black lung. Black lungs is when your lungs become blackened and ultimately begin to harden, leading to your death. The parents, the fathers who raise their sons in these communities, one father said, uh, he, he said, I tried to talk my son out of taking the same career. But he said, Dad, I want to do what you do. So he's a coal miner. But this long-term exposure to coal dust ultimately kills them. One man says, it turns your lungs into concrete. And when we heard that illustration, I could not help but think that's what sin does to us. The longer we walk in it, the more not our lungs but our heart begins to harden. The longer we linger in this world that's so broken apart from Jesus, the harder it is to get out of it. And what's even worse is that there are others who watch us and follow the same paths, thinking what we're doing is living up the life when really we're just miserable. Somebody once said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Black lungs is a matter in the coal mines, but the black heart, this heart of stone, the heart that is turned to concrete is a matter of sin in our world. 
Family of God, Jesus has made a way to take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And it all begins with Jesus who suffered and died for you. I pray that there might be some today who are bold enough to make a choice to say, Jesus, we're going to follow you. Family, let's expect open doors from God. Let's see them, let's seize them, let's be bold and let's take risks. Speaking of taking risks, we're going to transition to baptisms because there are eight brothers and sisters today who have chosen to be bold about their faith. Yeah. They have chosen to proclaim to the world that they are followers of Jesus. Baptism, by the way, family, is not for perfect people. So if you're perfect, you can't get in these waters. That's good news for all of us, huh? But it is for people who realize that in their imperfections, God's, uh, God gives them strength and healing and forgiveness through their faith and repentance and the following of Jesus. So everybody who comes on the stage has shared and their belief that Jesus has died for them. They have been saved by his grace. Before I invite the eight of them up, baptism is a symbol. And we want to make this crystal clear. Getting into the waters of baptism doesn't save anybody. People who are, have already been saved get into the waters. Baptism is a symbol of something having happened. When we put someone under the water, we're at the brook, we, we immerse, we put them under the water, it is a symbol of their death to their old self. And we bring them out of the waters, and we always do that, because they've put their faith in Jesus, <laughs> and they are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Baptism is a picture of God's redemption. Yes. So you've heard the gospel today, and you're about to witness its effects in someone's life. I want to invite up Josue, Christy, Rolando, Rosemary, Amia, Lucas, Moses, and Mackenzie. Come on up. <laughs> 